Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing mighty fine today. Very good. Very good. Everything's fine. Oh, good. Good, good. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a there's some considerable construction going on right outside the uh, the old bunker here. Yeah. And so uh, there may be some bleed into the mics of some uh, some steamrollers okay. and some some skid steers yes. and some oh, yeah. other equipment that is going beep beep beep. So just be forewarned. It's okay. one of my earliest memories. That sound the the, the backing beeping. up beeping hmm. because in Alaska uh, the snow plows tend to back up a lot they, they push the snow into a berm and then they back up and do it again and so mm-hmm. during the winter there's this sort of omnipresent beeping coming from all corners mm-hmm. there was a big there was a big road grader that used to they used to grade the road uh, when I was about, I don't know, three. I remember watching that that road grader work. The roads in in Anchorage were a lot of them were dirt. A lot of what are now like big roads up there were dirt when I was a kid, and uh, so the graders were working all the time, mm-hmm. summer and winter. Mm-hmm. Good memories. Good memories of equipment. Yeah. My mom used to say that that uh, even you know when when I could barely talk when I only had a few words I knew where every dump truck and bulldozer and grader was in all of Kitsap County back when I, when I was very little we lived in 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 Washington and uh, she said uh, we'd be riding in the car and I would go dozer and then she'd turn the corner and there would be a bulldozer park. Oh, you already were anticipating someone there. I I knew where they all were and I would, I would yell out, you know, here comes another dozer. Sure. Still feel that way. Still feel that way about dozers. Except for these fucking There's something just so attractive to, you know, and, and this is a thing, like, can you say this in 2020? I don't know, but there's something that's so attractive to boys about, big it's not to say that it's not also attractive to girls and non-binary people but boys seem to like and i remember seeing this with my son when he was so little that he just like and i i didn't care about big trucks and like excavators and stuff like that like it wasn't like hey buddy come look at the exit he he was just drawn to it just all on his own and it it, i don't know why like why is that why why is that a thing that uh that that boys especially seem to like i what is it about that i tried desperately to get my little girl to like tractors and trucks and (laughs) and uh, she didn't want anything to do with it right well you know she used to i would i'd hand her a little toy truck and she would turn it upside down and and try and feed it a bottle and i was like i it's not a baby and she's like it's a baby truck (laughs) so yeah do it do with that with what, what you will but uh, but yeah, this is a this is a weird time to start a construction project. The people next door, um, they bought an empty lot and are preparing it to build a house. But knowing a little bit about uh, cost overruns and construction pro- projects, I'm 
I can't help but feel like they are in over their heads here that that they realized that in order to meet county code they were going to have to put in a new road and they were going to have to chop down a bunch of trees and regrade the property and all of that before they've ever um, put a brick down and boy it's a lot of money they've spent so far oh yeah and I don't when I look at the lot when I look at the building lot I think really all that for a house here I don't know if I would have built a house here even if uh, even if not only had I not had to spend all that money but if you'd paid me that amount of money I don't <laughs> think I would want a house in this in this weird hole but well, it's not but up I to have you, a, John. I have, it's not up to you. That's right. And I have a lot of sympathy for people who get in over their heads on construction projects now. Let me tell you. Oh, Dan. yes, yes, yes. So yeah, what? any honestly. any updates for the uh, for me or the listeners? Oh, it's just all, it's pure garbage. I bought a, uh, I bought a giant, one of the things that was holding me up was I needed, and I don't think I needed, but, you know, at, at the farm, my old house, I had a, a drop-in tub that sat on top of a framework of wood uh-huh. and they'd made it uh they'd made it look like um you know ye old farmhouse if ye old farmhouse had had a drop in tub with with jacuzzi jets in it sure they did it they did they did as well as they could given the given their not very good carpentry skills, but the, this tub sat in this in this little cradle of of uh, beadboard, which was probably stapled to the to some two by fours. But the guys that are working on my house now, early on in the construction project, they said, "Well, the you know it's a drop in tub and it's it's a big one and it's got to sit upon a shelf of stone." A shelf of stone. And I said, "Well, stone isn't really appropriate." Uh, for a tub in a house of this era and I don't and I'm not somebody who's like stone crazy you know you go into a lot of these modern houses and it's like stone city stone everywhere you got countertops you got countertops in the bathroom (laughs) slate on the floor it's all stone stone bathtub surround stone basement and I'm like you know I'm talking about granite and marble and so forth I was like, that doesn't appeal to me at all. And they were like, well, it's, you know, you got to have it. And I'm like, it's structural. Well, you know, that's better because otherwise the tile, all this stuff. So I resisted it for a long time because I was like stone. And I would go to these stone warehouses and, you know, it's this global industry of sawing down mountains, not mountains, but big stone hills and producing these these giant slabs that are probably what 12 feet by six feet or something big big slabs of different colored stone from around the world and then they ship it all around the world and there they have these in seattle there have to be damn 20 different businesses selling giant slabs of colored 
stones from like around for the countertops world. and other yeah. things like that. Yeah. yeah. And then you, they're kind of yeah. out of the way. Right. And they're always behind a chain link fence and there's like gravel on the ground and then the big piles and bins of stuff. I love looking at those things. Oh, they're wonderful. And, and in Seattle, they're all sort of congregated in the Georgetown neighborhood. Um, and I like them too. And especially when you, when you, when the businesses go to the trouble of showing you where the stone came from and what it's, you know, what it's interesting attributes are and what kind of stone it is. I mean, it's great. And when I was a, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time in government buildings and downtown buildings that were built in the 1920s and prior. And a lot of those buildings had stone stairs, both in public spaces and private. If you went into the men's room, all of the stalls were divided by big pieces of marble. The marble, the floors were marble. There was so much marble and it's, and it wasn't, you know, it's not granite. It's like proper gray marble that looks, and those slabs sometimes were three inches thick. I mean, just like stone everywhere. And I, if you, if you've ever been to a, like an old American office building, like the stairs would get worn by all the feet right. and there'd be these kinds of, you know, like sort of cupping that would happen on these big staircases. And so I loved those spaces because that was back when uh, everybody wore leather shoes. So when you were downtown, they, there was that constant clip, 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 you know, the, the clopping of, of people's shoes before everybody's shoes became rubber and then plastic. <laughs> right. And so there was this whole vibe of downtown. If you went into a men's room in the Dexter Horton building, you heard the leather soled shoes slapping in this echoey marble chamber was it was just as evocative as the old as as the fire trucks and cars used to be before they before noise pollution became a thing and they quieted quieted everything down so i'm not against stone i just didn't want stone in my own freaking bathroom but they insisted these guys and i think the problem was the problem with this whole project was that the contractors that I hired, I hired because my friend worked for them. Right. You told and the this, story. He was, it was a guy you wanted to hang out with them and see him and you hired them and, and they just haven't delivered. They haven't performed. Well, and the problem is that they imagine about themselves that they are like high finish contractors. Like oh, they yeah. do high end work, you know? Now they imagine that about themselves and that's the, that's the world that they try to target, uh, in their advertising and so forth. And so they're, you know, they've got a, um, they came into this project with a lot of pride about how, how good they were, not just good at their work, but like they only work on the finest properties, oh, you know, right, kind right, of right, thing. Sure. But like anybody in this business and in so many businesses, they've got their, they've got their suppliers that they go to routinely. They've got their relationships and their, and their, um, you know, they've got tabs open at, at a half a dozen or a dozen businesses where they get their supplies, but they're completely beholden to the, to what is fashionable at those five places. Like they have no ability to look outside of, of the, of the box 
and I've thwarted them at every turn. Like, you know, they'd say, here's, here, there's 17 different kinds of granite. And I'm like, no granite. <laughs> they're like, well, then there's like only four alternatives to granite. And I'm like, none of those alternatives. And they're like, well, in that case, there's, <laughs> I mean, we could do this. No. Well, okay. So what then? Well, I want it, you know, here's what I want. And they're like, I've never seen that before. And I'm like, well, you've never lived. So, you know, it's that level of frustration. But I finally went to the stone yard and I'd been to the stone yard 15 times and I'd walked out of there every time going like, well, I could get translucent yellow gold stone from Turkey and underlight it with, you know, LEDs mm -hmm. or I could get jadeite from central Alaska and, and carve statues of dragons and put the bathtub on top of those, you know, just, and I finally grabbed the contractor and was like, look, you have to go to the stone yard with me and tell me what you're looking for. Cause what I'm looking for is none of this. And if you <laughs> insist that I have this, then you have to go show me exactly what you, what is going to work and what isn't. Cause this business is like, send me off on this fool's errand. I come back with a, you know, I, I walk through the stone yard, like a journalist, which is kind of how I walked through everything. Like, tell me about this. So where did this come from? So why would that be better than this? You know, and, and the people that work there are like, wow, I've got a live one here. And I walk out knowing a lot more, but having uh, only being further away from a decision. So I get, I, I see this stone. I like it. It's been treated. It's, it's slightly, it's been treated. It's not natural in the sense of it being exactly as, as God made it after you sawed it with a giant saw and polished it, they sawed it with a giant saw, etched it, and then polished it. Mm. Just, just, just very, very, very subtle etching. But I liked it. So I see this stone. I'm like, that's the one. I'm going to choose that. And it's this giant slab, and they won't sell you a portion of it. They have to sell you the whole thing. Okay, fine. I don't care anymore. I'll buy the whole thing, cut the piece I need out of it or the pieces, and I'll take the rest and I'll build public benches for all the squirrels. Like, let's just move on this. So they cut the pieces, and then the business moves in the in the middle of the of between me ordering it, them cutting it, and them installing it the business moves to a new location. Now, I mean, if you can gotta, picture... That's got to be a little nerve-wracking with all that going on, I would think. Nerve-wracking, right. Yeah. Well, stone is fragile. Yeah. It's extremely heavy. And if you can picture a stone yard, as you described, a gravel lot covered with giant, fragile super heavy, valuable rocks in slabs. How do you move that? I mean, I don't even understand how it would be. It would be multiple, multiple semi trucks, weeks and weeks of work. As far as I could tell to move this and set it up. Well, it was too difficult for these people because in the process, after having cut my stone, they lost it. Oh no. They were scheduled to, 
to bring it and install it and they lost it. And I'm like, lost it? Lost it? I mean, this was stone you'd cut. So it wasn't just like, throw it on the truck. It's like, it should have been in a much, much smaller pile of Mm. things you'd already done that just needed to go out. But they lost it. So it got pushed back while they cut it again. And I was like, all right, all right. This is just like in, in a, in a project of a, of a hundred cost overruns and, and foo bars. Uh, here's a situation where after months of stalling and dragging my feet and, and casting aspersions on everything, I finally picked a stone that I liked. I paid for it. They cut it and now it's lost. Of course it's lost. Of course. I'm only surprised it didn't kill somebody in the process of getting lost. <laughs> oh, so man. they go to cut it again. Now at this point, no, is my, it, are you sure that you're like, when you picked the stone, were you actually saying that specific one is the one that I want? Or was it more like, yes. Oh, so, so the ones that they had to cut again, did you have to go and pick them again? Well, no, because what I bought was a, was a stone much larger than the amount of stone I needed. And I know it was a specific piece of stone because this stone had a little corner taken out of it where it had been used for a larger, or it had been used as a component of something else and they were selling it again, basically. You know, I think in most cases, if you buy a big stone like that, you only need some of it and you really don't want the rest of it. So you leave it there and it's, and they, part of being in the stone business is saying we can only sell you the whole stone, but then you're going to leave the other half of it and we're going to sell it again to somebody. We're going to tell them that we can only sell them the whole stone. And their, their whole stone is actually just the piece of the stone that you didn't need. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but this was a large piece of stone and what I needed out of it was a small piece. And what I imagined I would do with the rest is actually make some stone benches for the backyard. But I didn't get that far with them before we were back to them, you know, taking another bite out of the apple. They had, they knew where the original stone was. So they cut new pieces and after a couple of weeks delay, they sent their installer out. Well, my contractor and my, and the lead carpenter, you know, uh, guy on my project had been telling me, well, you know, this stone, you know, it's going to fit in there. It's going to look it's going to look great. If they have to do it in two pieces, it's going to be seamless. You won't even notice the seam. Oh, that's the and oldest I, so, line in the book. You won't notice the seam. That's the same as the checks in the mail. Well, but the thing is in my old seam in my old kitchen at the farm, which had been fixed up by the people that sold it to me and they'd put <laughs> granite countertops in it, right? Granite countertops that even when I lay in bed at night, for 10 years, <laughs> they throbbed in my mind, granite countertops are in your kitchen, in your 1914 home. You have granite countertops and cherry cupboards. You know, it, <laughs> they were like a ghost ooh, that rattled its <laughs> chains. And, and yet, that granite countertop, which was also in a black color palette which is what the stone that i picked for the bathtub was in a sort of dark gray 
to black color a color palette. There was a a very complicated seam between two large pieces of granite in that in my old kitchen. And I don't think I even noticed the seam was there for the first year I lived there. It was so artfully done. And it was a complicated seam in that there was a, actually a, a turn in the cut. So there was, a, there was an angle between two pieces where each piece had to have a, you know, a, the reverse angle of the other. And the front of the, of the stone had been, you know, coved or put, there was, there's a, there was a, a curve put on the edge and the edges had to meet in this angle. So there was an angle and a, and a curved edge that made a corner and it was done so well that I didn't see it for a year. And I know that the people that installed my kitchen did not spare any, you know, they weren't like spare no expense. This was just an example of whatever stone installer was working on that particular day was good and took pride and did a, did a great job. Um, so I did have in mind a sense of like what it looks like when it is seamlessly done. Mm -hmm. But I also have had enough experience with work men on this project that I was prepared. I'm not a cynic, Dan, but I was prepared for the worst such that I called the lead, uh, the lead actor on my project, Alberto. Uh -huh. And I said, Alberto, I would like you to be at the house when the stone installer arrives so that you can supervise and make sure, you know, because Alberto talks a big game. Alberto says, oh, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like that. It's going to be amazing. And then, you know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. And, um, and I'm like, you know what needs to go here, Alberto. So be there and make sure that that's what happens. He's like, okay, John. And he goes and he's there when the stone installer comes. And stone installer installs the stone. I can't be there, but when I get there that afternoon and look at the installed stone, mm -hmm. it looks like garbage. Mm. What was wrong? The with joint, be well, the joint between the two pieces, um, was caulked mm. with black caulk. No, really, in the same, yeah, in the same way that you would caulk between a um. Well, between like a a base plate and a wall in a house that was not square. Yeah, no, I you know, there's know just exactly like, what you're talking about. Put a bead of caulk there and then run your thumb over it to give it a little bit of a, you know, a little finish mm -hmm. and you're out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, you could, you could rest your pencil in this, uh, in this joint. <laughs> right. <laughs> you could see it from across the room. And, you and know, were they just, they were just done. They were just going to leave it that way. Oh, that was it. Uh. And Alberto was there. This was not a, um, this was not an example of a seamless stone no. lay. No, but as, as, as we've covered, 
you know, my, my natural tendency is to assume that I'm wrong and that it's my fault. And in this case, all the delays and cost overruns and, and, and half-assed decisions and bad choices. And now I'm looking at this, they've already done this once and lost the pieces. Now they've done it a second time and they've installed it. And all that needs to happen now is for me to sign off on it and they'll put that bathtub on there. No. And off we go. And I walk out of the house and I, you know, and I, I pace around and I go to bed at night and I'm thinking about this thing and I'm just like so not into it. But I'm prepared to say, well, just who cares? Just, just finish it and let's just get on with our lives. Yeah. But I, but I mentioned it to my sister and my sister is, when my sister and I are on good terms, my sister really can act as, um, in some ways, uh, she's a great consigliere and companion piece to me. Hmm. She can be my ego. She can be my id. She can be my super ego, depending on what's needed. And you can bounce things off my sister as she bounces things off of me. And nobody knows me quite as well as she does. Mm. And, and we're both highly sensitive people. Yes. And she I tell her this story and I tell her in this voice of frustration that I so often resort to in situations like this where I'm like, just whatever, it doesn't matter. Screw it. Burn it all down. I don't care. I'm going to go live in a Winnebago somewhere. And she's <laughs> like, look, if you leave it, you're going to lay in bed at night and it's going to haunt you like a, go- like a ghost. <laughs> right. The which, it's doing, the which it is doing for you. She's like, do not let, the, let them get away with this. You right. know, it's got to be done correctly. This is, this, your contractor prides themselves on being this expensive, high finish operation You've paid all this money. You you specifically, you know, they've screwed up once on this. Make them do it over. And I was like, ah, oh, do it over. Like, what a pain in the ass. But at that moment, the contractor texts me and says, how's it look? Three exclamation points. Mm, had he seen it or had just his men no. had done it? Okay. No. And part of the problem in this whole project is that the contractor himself, who's a guy my age is going through some stuff in his life. Mm-hmm. He's got some stuff, I think, in his marriage or maybe in his business or maybe in his own house has a leak in the floorboards or uh, maybe he's changing religions or I don't know. He's decided that he always wanted to be in the ballet. I'm not sure what's going on with him, but he is not supervising Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have anyone else supervising what i have is alberto who's the lead con who's the lead kind of guy he does carpentry he does electrical he does plumbing none of it really probably none of it would he's not like i don't think licensed and bonded to do all those things he's just 
really good at it and he's fine and it's fine and this thing is all done as a sort of you know we're just i don't want to say like loosey-goosey about it but you know there's a lot of different scales of house remodels and some of it is done depending on how you how you look at the world i guess what what i'm euphemistically or i'm dancing around saying that not every project is permitted by the city although every project although the city would uh were it up to the city would require that every project be permitted of this scale and permitting is a, as you know, a, a, a bugbear for a lot of projects and it involves a lot of, uh, sort of hoop jumping and unnecessary bureaucracy. And even I, as a lover of bureaucracy, recognize that sometimes you can just, you you redo the tile, you move a couple of things around, a, a couple of outlets need to get moved. You don't need to call a city inspector in and permit it because it's not, nobody's going to notice, right? Once mm-hmm. the wallboard is, is spackled, the fact that a couple of new outlets got put in, it's, you know, the house isn't going to burn down. It's these people are, are capable workers. Um, but Alberto is kind of a prima donna also. He's a young guy. He's a hardworking guy. He works, he's got to be working 80 hours a week. Hmm. Um, and so Alberto is, is supervising the project, but he's kind of a little bit of an unreliable narrator in the sense that he believes that he does really good work and he also sort of feels like uh the guy his his boss the contractor um isn't isn't doing a good job for lack of a better way of putting it he says my boss isn't giving you the attention you deserve and that creates a dynamic where i've got you know, I've got two different guys who kind of have conspiracies with me. The contractor's <laughs> like, well, here's what we're going to tell Alberto. And he's going to, w- Alberto's going to do this a certain way, but we just need to tell him this. And I'm like, okay. And then I talk to Alberto and he's like, oh man, you know, Lawrence isn't really, you know, he's not telling you the whole story. And it's like, okay, Alberto. All right, Lawrence. You know, and I would start text threads with them both so that we could get around this like conspiratorial nature that seems to happen between them. Like, okay guys, I'm giving you both. And then they would text me individually like, okay, well, this is is what we need to do. Not super confidence inspiring, but Alberta was there and didn't say anything. And Lawrence texts me and says, how's it look? And I was in and my sister had just given me the, had just read me the riot act. And so I texted him back and said, it looks like shit. It looks like shit. And if this is the high grade finish that you're, that, you know, that you put in your, in your color brochures, then, then I want you to go there to the, to the bathroom tomorrow and look at it yourself with your own eyes and tell me that's, tell me you sign off on it as the, as the guy that's the guy I'm paying. 
and he was like, Oh no, you know, send me a picture or whatever. Like he even then didn't get in his truck and drive down. And when I looked at it the next day, I realized Dan mm-hmm. that this etching in the stone, yeah, the etching is, is directional uh, in the sense that these two pieces that make up this bathtub foundation right were cut from the stone the one piece of stone but they were cut from different sides so that even if they had abutted perfectly they don't align one set of well that doesn't make any sense well no one set of hash marks goes north south and the other set of hash marks goes east west and it's very subtle but it's only subtle until you look at it right and so at that point my whole any reluctance i had to say this has got to get done over yeah went out the window and i was like this is fucked like so like you're you guys like you want to fire these guys they're so bad well but but you know the way the stone business is is you you pay up front because they're cutting you know they're once they cut this piece of stone right they it's yours I have no it's idea. yours right at that yeah. point yeah. I have no idea why why I paid up front frankly but um so back to the drawing board we we've, we've got to cut we've got to cut this a third time and re take this out and reinstall it mm. So for a couple of weeks, that that bumped the whole thing out a couple of weeks, and the stone company isn't answering their phone and all this other stuff. <laughs> of course. And last night, Lawrence texts me and says, well, they want to send somebody out because they only want to cut, they, they, they want to see if one of the pieces of stone was cut well enough that they can use it and they just have to cut the other piece in the right direction. And what I realized is, oh, they're out of stone. Like oh. they had my piece of stone and they have taken now three bites at this apple. And they don't have enough of it to, to, to do a third time. So that was what I woke up this morning. That was the first, the first problem I had to solve. And the problem, like I, I sent two angry texts this mm-hmm. morning mm-hmm. in the five minutes between when I woke up and when I got down here. One of them was to Lawrence saying, it's not my problem. They need to go find a, a virgin piece of stone and cut one three-foot piece out of it, and then I want them to take the remainder of that stone and throw it in the Duwamish River. <laughs> I, want, I want to stand out there with a, with, a, with a slingshot and shoot rocks at it until it cracks. Like, I don't give a fuck anymore about them or you or your profit or loss, and I know I'm... I know I'm right on the edge of this contractor saying, you know what? I, 
I'm sorry, we screwed up your project, but I don't want to deal with you anymore, and I don't want to deal with it anymore, and goodbye. Because contractors are all prima donnas. They, you know, they have more business than they know what to do with. And it could happen, right? Mm-hmm. He, could, yeah. uh, he could one day say, I just can't devote any more resources to you. You're too, this project is too hard, and it's you know, not my problem, basically. It could happen. And I know I'm pushing my luck when I write him and say, this is like a colossal fucking fuck up on your part and on their part. And if you supervised this project with, with one tenth of what you should be devoting to it, it'd be done already. He could bail. And then the other text I sent was to my doctor where I said, it feels like you're extorting me to come in and get my weight checked and my height checked and my reflexes checked once a year by not refilling my prescription. My doctor says I need to come in to get my, to get a checkup um, in order for her to, f- to fill my prescriptions. And I don't know whether this is, is this some a prescription for your, um, for your um, bipolar medicine. I have three prescriptions. One of them is my bipolar medicine. And then I have hypertension or high blood pressure. Right. She prescribed me one pill, but it wasn't sufficient. And there are probably plenty of people listening who have high blood pressure. And in treating high blood pressure, I've realized that this is a very complicated and tricky science for, Mm -hmm. for doctors. Because blood pressure medicine, I guess, affects you, makes you feel weird or woozy or or something. But it can. Also, controlling high blood pressure is hard for them to do with medication. And I had consistently high blood pressure for several years that I kind of left untreated because I was trying to do all the things about eat less salt and exercise and keep a sunny disposition and, and, uh, you know, tie the little, uh, a little bit to Cthulhu and all these things. And it didn't, none of it affected my blood pressure. Right. So, but after four or five years of knowing I had high blood pressure and not doing anything about it, I realized like, I need to do something about it. It's dangerous. So she gave me a pill and then she gave me another pill. So I take two high blood pressure medicines and it, and they do work. One of them is hydrochlorothiazide and the other one is something else. I don't know what. But what happens is these prescriptions, you know, I said to her a couple of years ago, I'm not some geezer who likes to go to the drugstore. You know, I don't, I don't want to go to the drugstore ever, let alone once a month to fill my little prescription bottles. And I know there are lots of people in the world, my parents both being examples of this, who who like to run errands. Mm. There are people who just enjoy, and I think it I think it also maybe has to to do with age my mom loves to run errands loves it 
I think it's that maybe they came up in a time when they went to the butcher shop three times a week yeah. and the they went to the shoe, you know, the cobbler to get their shoes resold and then they went over to get a permanent at the hair salon and then they went to the library in my mom's case and the drugstore and the pet food st- I mean there weren't pet food stores oh the hardware store they went to to get a little thing errands were part of what made life have meaning because you're busy you've got a list of places to go and things to do and you have to do them you go to the dry cleaners to get your shirts you stop by the stop by your tailor to see if the if he's got any new ties i mean i don't know what people did honestly in the 1950s and 60s but it seems to me that in the era before one stop shopping and supermarkets and department stores I guess there were always department stores. I'm talking about box stores. Mm-hmm. Errands were, I guess, what 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 framed their their uh, their lives. What framed their existences. I don't like errands. I don't. I never have enjoyed running errands every time i go to the drugstore it is i'm under duress it's because i'm sick and i need some cold medicine like i don't go wander the aisles of the drugstore i don't want to talk to the pharmacist and and i I, so i i'm in there once a month filling my prescription and i said to my doctor look these medicines are not temporary they're not psychoactive. They're not dangerous. I can't abuse them. If I took two of these or five of them, maybe five hydrochlorothiazides would have some effect on me, but but according to my psychiatrist, five lamictals would just go out in my pee. I'm not ever going <laughs> to do anything but take one of each of these every morning presumably for the rest of my life. Now, I understand that high blood pressure is a thing that wiggles around and you have to check on me sometimes and make sure it's working. But the way to get me to come in to get checked on is not to cut off my pills. That seems crazy. Well, they just, they, you just said that you don't want to go in and that nothing could make you go in. So they're actually doing exactly what they need to do to get you in. No, no, no. I will go to the doctor. Yeah. I don't want to go. When you don't feel good. Well, I'll go to the drugstore when I don't feel good. What I, what I asked her to do was, will you, will you give me these prescriptions with 90 day quantities? Like have them put them in the bottles. So I only have to go refill my prescription every three months. Mm-hmm. And she did it. But then all of a sudden on the bottle, it said two refills remaining, one refill remaining, zero refills remaining. And I tried to get the, I tried to get a refill, you know, I extended and they were like, we'll give you 30 more days, but you have to come see the doctor. And what, whatever the, whatever the anti-authoritarian that lives inside my heart Whatever I feed 
him normally to keep him <laughs> at peace. <laughs> and I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what fantasy I feed this anti-authoritarian that makes him that you know that satiates him enough that he doesn't intrude on my life like he used to and like he could um that anti-authoritarian has gotten me in a lot of trouble over the years where i'm standing in line somewhere at a dmv or whatever and the line is too long and the person i look up and the person seems incompetent and i'm like you know what fuck this and I walk out and then my tabs expire or my, or I don't have the permits or whatever. And then I'm in trouble, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm busted down the line. That anti-authoritarian stood up and said, what, what the hell? Because what it seems like now is, okay, I'm taking this medicine now for the rest of my life. But that also means that I'm legally mandated or 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 mandated by by the American Medical Medical Association's by bylaws that I need to go in and have my weight and height and reflexes checked every year uh, and they're going to charge my insurance company and now it's all just one big happy fucking maypole dance in order for me to not have high blood pressure. I honestly, Dan, in my heart, between 40 and 55% of me is like, it's better to have high blood pressure than to get roped into this kind of errand based, um, like culture of eels, tiny eels. It's just like, It, it, it feels, it feels like extortion and, and it's the type of thing that would drive me to get my prescriptions in Mexico <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> you know? And I know I'm talking to a guy who loves to go to the doctor. You go to the doctor, I think what, six times a week? Me? Two times a week. You, you like to go to the doctor. I, I don't like to go to the doctor, but I, I, in the last couple of weeks, I have my regular therapy appointment, and she is a doctor. And then I had you a dermatologist to go to the doctor. You I have, absolutely you have, hate it. I absolutely hate it. You have canceled so many episodes of road work because you had a doctor's appointment. Not so many. Had, I have canceled some, but I, that doesn't mean that I love doing it. That would be like saying that you, you know, you love picking granite and having bad countertops installed. You love it. You don't know how many, how many times know. have you done it compared to me? I've never had that happen. So you must love you, doing it. You've done, you've gone to the doctor more in the last six months than I have in the last six years. And I, at a certain I, point, I, I go to a therapist like, on a weekly basis. And so, yes, yeah, but, th that's a, right. but that's an appointment. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be canceling road work to go to she your only, regular therapy. She, yes, I absolutely did because she had a schedule that had changed and she, because of COVID changed her schedule so that she couldn't be in the office on certain days. And so she asked me if I could move it. And I said, well, I, I can't do it on Thursday afternoons because that's when I record. And she says, well, that's the only day that I have it. So I tried doing it before and then I wound up getting here uh, like a little bit late. And then I tried doing it after and that cut into the end. And so finally she's got me uh, at a time next Thursday that is going to be perfect. But it's all the same doctor and it's the same one appointment that I just had to groove. And it's the same appointment that I've had. Just mm -hmm. had to, she moved it because of COVID. Mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> you can subscribe to my calendar. I don't mind sharing it. Mm -hmm. In any case. But let's be clear. Let's be clear. I, I absolutely hate the doctor. I hate going uh, the regular mm -hmm. doctor, any kind of regular doctor. It's literally the worst for me because as, as an OCD germaphobe, I'm very, very aware that all the sick people of all kinds of sicknesses, not just COVID sickness, but mm -hmm. all kinds of sicknesses, they're all going to the doctor. And I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be where they are. I don't want to be told that I'm healthy or that I'm sick. I will decide that for myself. I'm usually at odds with any doctor that I go to because I'm opposed to big pharma and I don't like taking prescription medication at all. And I resist it. And they, they mm. want me to, to have this full exam where they probe everything. I don't want to do that. And, uh, you know, and, and generally speaking, the doctors, they're, they're wrong a lot of the time. They're just wrong. They're just wrong. They say things that are wrong. And I don't like going to a doctor having researched something where I seem to know a lot about it and they don't know as much about it. That bothers me too. There's nothing good about a doctor. I feel like you get, you go to the doctor and you come out worse a lot of the time. Sorry to the doctors in the audience. Um, I think our healthcare system is fractured beyond repair. I, I, I remember here's, here's something I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little story about a doctor since you brought it up. Uh, mm. This is back in the day when I was having uh, GERD, which stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. And I, um, I had it due to stress, okay, and stress and my anxiety and other things. This is maybe 13, 14 years ago, 15. And I went to the doctor for it, and I said, you know, this is really, really bad. And he said, okay, well, I'm like, here, here, try. And, I, you know, I had done a, a little bit of research. I said, well, I want to try Nexium, the purple pill. I want to try that. My friend had it and uh, that, or maybe Prilosec. Uh, one of those two. Those are the two I read about. I, I want to try those. He said, well, I want you to try this other one first. And I said, well... Well, okay, why is it better? He's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's good. You should try it. And he prescribed it to me. And it not only didn't it help, but I started getting really bad headaches from it. So oh, really? I, a week later, I said, this is a piece of shit. It sucks. I'm not taking it anymore. Can I have like Nexium? And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll write out a prescription for that. I'm like, be honest with me. Why did you even prescribe the other one? He's like, well, we had a rep come in. And, uh, you know, they said, because he, I found out later they get a kickback from it. They get a kickback from prescribing that one compared to the other one. So he prescribed me, um, Naxium or whatever, whichever the two. And, uh, and it, it immediately started working. Now I'm, that's not the end of the story, although that's bad enough. Um, mm. it didn't, it didn't get better. And I was on this stuff and even taking this didn't help. So I went to a specialist whose his whole thing was, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease, all of them. That's his main thing. He says, well, we're going to need to do an upper endoscopy on you oh dear. just to see what's wow. going on. Go, go, I, go. I said, okay, fine. So they take me into the, uh, into the, the thing and put me on a stretcher, drew him a heart, and he's looking and he says, well, he says, you know, I didn't see anything in there. Uh, it was fine in there. Uh, there's no sign of anything. I also looked at your pancreas. That looked good, too. Everything looks good. He says, but you know, there's an old saying from where I'm from. He says, there's three things that cause this. Hurry, curry, and worry. And he said, mm -hmm. and, and so he said, but you're at the point now where you're, uh, you're going to be probably just taking this forever. I know I do. And I'm like, oh, so I'm going to be on this medicine forever for the rest of my life. He's like, yeah, for sure. 
And I'm like, well, I didn't like the sound of that. So I wound up going to another doctor for something else. And we got in the conversation about what else I was taking. I said this stuff. And he laughed. Like, yeah, I take that too. I'm like, but I'm trying to get off it. And he just sat back in his chair and just laughed. He's like, yeah, you're not going to ever get off of this thing. Wow. And not ever going to get off it. And so I said, actually, I will. Because this isn't a permanent condition, there's nothing physically wrong with me, it's coming from something else, I need to change whatever the cause of this is. The cause doesn't seem to be physical, purely, it seems to be associated with stress, anxiety, other things like that. And that's what actually led me to start my meditation practice. And a few months after doing that, very, very working very hard at that, um, I started to uh, not take it. I would take it every other day and then I'd take it every three days. And then eventually I didn't have to take it at all anymore. And it's been 15 years. So my opinion of Western medicine for acute situations, a gunshot wound, or you got something horribly wrong with you, it can save your life. Antibiotics can save you from things that a hundred years ago would have killed you. I appreciate all of that stuff. But as far as just, I have a thing, you go into a doctor, they look at you, they treat you for the symptom and they send you and, they, they, and, then, and then there's side effects from that medicine. So now you got to take a second medicine and then a third and a fourth. And that's what our entire medical culture is based around. It's getting you to take one drug and then prescribing additional drugs to further medicate you until you're taking all this stuff for the rest of your life. And that's modern Western medicine in, in a nutshell. I'm not taking away the good parts of it that are life-saving. And I know that a lot of these medicines are incredibly helpful for people, so I don't need to get emails about it. But I'm saying for like the regular person who just goes in, I knew a guy, he had some kind of just like, you know, some cold or something like that. And I and he had like a, or like, you know, like a virus. This was way before COVID. And he went in, I, I said, well, you know, he's like, oh, I had to go to the hospital last night. I'm like, oh no, what, what happened? What's wrong? What happened to you? He's like, oh, well, you know, I had a fever. I said, how high was it? He's like, well, it was like one, it was like 102, 103. I'm like, oh, that's pretty high. It must've been pretty uncomfortable. He's like, yeah. And it wouldn't go away. It just would not go away. I said, oh, how long did you have the fever? He's like, almost two days. And I was like, well, your body's fighting something, you know, you got to let it run its course. A fever is not a bad thing. Fever is how your body gets rid of a lot of stuff. He's well, no, 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 no. This was really like 102. This is really high. And so I had to go to the hospital. I'm like, well, what did they do for you? Well, they said I had some kind of um, upper respiratory infection and to wait it out. I'm like, well, what did you go to the hospital for then? He's like, well, you know, you wanted to be sure. Plus, they gave me antibiotics. I'm like, well, why did they give you antibiotics? Well, they said just in case. And I'm like, well, are you taking them? Oh, yeah, I started taking them. This is Western medicine. It's screwed up, and people don't know what to do. They think you, Most people think a fever is bad. Oh, you shouldn't have a fever. That's bad. A fever is bad. No, a fever is the way that your body gets rid of stuff. I know people who the minute that they get a fever, they start taking Advil or Tylenol or something, or as they say in, uh, in uh, New Zealand, ibuprofen. And what'll happen to them is that it'll cut their fever down and they'll feel better, but it prolongs how, how long it takes for them to get better because that's your body's natural mechanism to eliminate whatever it is. And if you can deal with the fever for a couple days, three days, your body will get better faster. Generally speaking, people will say, well, what if the fever spikes and you get, you know, then you have a seizure or something. I mean, yeah, that can happen, but if you're that sick, Advil is not saving your life. 
And it's not just the fever that, anyway, don't get me started. Long story short, John, I don't like going to the doctor. Well, so here we are. That is, um, that is a, that is an excellent disquisition on your feelings about the doctor. Don't like going. Noted, noted in the record. My therapist, I like going to. She's great. We mostly talk I, about I, you, but you know. Oh yeah, is that yeah, right? Of all the, the of all the people to talk about, you don't talk about Merlin with your therapist. No, it would no, seem no. like no. it would seem more likely that you would talk about <laughs> than talk. About. I'm very easy to manage. <laughs> Just tell me that everything's fine and that everything's going to be fine, and I will believe you. That's my inclination. I want things to be fine. I do believe they will be fine. If you tell me they're going to be fine, that you know that dovetails exactly with what I want to hear. Now, do you still have a therapist that, that you go to? Do you still go or talk to someone? No, I didn't like. Uh, I didn't like my therapist particularly, um, which is not to say that I didn't uh, like think he was a good dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was more that that thinking my therapist was a good dude probably wasn't the point of me going to see a therapist. (laughs) Right. Um, And so, so I stopped going to him and did not find a new therapist because, you know, I was, I had a couple of therapists recommended to me. I contacted them and they did the thing that uh, it seems like, doctors and therapists in particular do which is to say oh i don't have any openings but tell me your situation and we'll talk about it and i'm like well if you don't have any openings let's not waste any more time if you want to hear my situation and talk to me about it then it sounds like maybe you do have an opening or would <laughs> you know or are prepared to have an opening and you're auditioning me or something, um, you know, like don't, don't let me, don't, don't ask me to come talk to you or, or to talk to you on the phone about my problem just to make me feel better. I, I, I mean, that is what therapy is, but I don't, don't do it one time just so that I don't feel blown off. If you can't take me as a new, uh, patient, then, um, please blow me off. Like, moving on. And I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know what it is to be a therapist. I know that the friends that I have who became therapists, um, if I had to pick among my own friends who I would go to if I needed therapy and only had my friends to work with, uh, the friends that have become therapists are not the ones I would choose to talk to if I needed therapy, hmm. right? It's the, it's the paradox of having friends become psychiatrists uh, because at least in my, in my um, limited experience uh, of having a couple friends or a small handful of friends who, who became psychiatrists or psychologists, that in each case, when I learned that about them, when they were, you know, choosing a career path as young people, 
I went to other friends and said, really? A psychiatrist? Like, really? And they all went, I know, right? And I'm like, of every, of all of us, like, that's the one of us that's going to be a psychiatrist? Wow. Seems like not a good fit. And they're like, I know, right? In the sense that the people I know who have become therapists are the ones that you that maybe we would have described as needing the most therapy. And maybe that's how you find your way into that career path is that you're seeking something and then you get over there and you're like, wow, this seems right for me. That is definitely the case with my psychiatrist. How he became a therapist, I will never know. Whatever it is, if you if you introduce me to 10 people, just 10 randoms in a bar, at the end of the night, it would be, I think, pretty clear which of those 10 is the best therapist. Um, I've never had a therapist, a professional therapist, mm-hmm. that met that um, the criteria that Bechtel test or mm. whatever, or that, mm. that Voight comp test is what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You give the Voight comp test uh-huh. and that's then, how you and, pick your therapist out. Yeah. And Leon is like, what do you mean? Like, do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? And it's like, I, just answer the question, Leon. And, and that seems, I mean, I've always said that about college professors too. Like the people that you could, you could have 10 people in a bar and spend 15 minutes with each of them and come out of that experience, come out of that evening and say, and pick the person who is going to be the best teacher. The, the person that it's like, I want to hear this person explain a subject to me, any subject probably. If they took a year long course in a thing, they would be, they would be the one I would want to learn about it from. But the people that are college professors are the ones who have gotten PhDs. And the people who get PhDs are not the ones, if you interviewed 10 people in a bar, generally, that you would want to learn from. Because getting a PhD and being a good teacher are maybe not mutually exclusive, but they certainly aren't... um, you know, uh, logically connected, getting a PhD is one set of skills, being a good teacher, kind of completely different set of skills. And I think even mutually exclusive. So trying to find a psychiatrist for me, I have not undertaken a lengthy search where I've interviewed 15 psychiatrists, all of whom told me they have no openings and then settled on the one sage, the one that felt like they, um, you know, I don't know, have an understanding, and then tried to convince them to see me as a patient. But I, and partly, partly I, I haven't done that because I'm lazy and I don't like making appointments and I hate interviewing people, but also because I have this fear that I already know what will happen. And I hate that. I hate that fear. 
because I don't already know what's going to happen. When I, when I, when I overcome that in every aspect of life and actually go pursue a thing that I, that I was inhibited from pursuing because of the fear that I already knew what was going to happen, I'm routinely surprised, pleasantly surprised. Turns out I didn't know what was going to happen. Turns out I met the interesting person. You know, I hired a contractor to work on my house and I really didn't want to interview a bunch of people because I had this fear that I knew what was going to happen. And it turned out I hired somebody and my fear came to pass. You know, my worst, my worst fear kind of came to pass. Oh, this contractor doesn't have the skills. It's not that the carpentry skills or the tiling skills aren't there. It's that the contracting skills aren't there. Mm-hmm. The, the project managing the, the, uh, client managing the ability to see into the future managing that a contractor should have a good one. But you know, the, my fear about a psychiatrist is that I feel like I'm, I feel like I would be very, very difficult to, to therapy, you know, super difficult to effectively counsel and I don't want to – I've been disappointed by psychiatrists and psychologists, and I don't want to have it happen again because it's an involved process. You go in and you're, you're like, oh, I don't have the right feeling about this person, but I'll give them a second chance. Mm-hmm. And then your third or fourth appointment, you're like, well, that was a pretty good appointment. I guess maybe, you know, maybe they'll come around. And it's only after a year that you're like, I don't jive with this person. And – I feel like I need to, you know, if you think about, if you think about, uh, Jennifer Melfi in the Sopranos, Mm -hmm. and then you think about her psychiatrist, the great director, I don't know, who is that? Who, who, who who plays her? The guy with the glasses. Um, Yeah. Uh, let's see here. I'm looking it up. Yeah. It's Dino De Laurentiis or something. Oh, like yeah, yeah. Um, oh, look at that. She's got a whole Wikipedia page on her. Well, of course she does. <laughs> da, 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 who's her psychiatrist? It's Peter Bogdanovich. That's oh, who it is. Of course. course. Good of old course. Peter Bogdanovich. Pete. I call him Pete. Pete. But if you think about Jennifer Melfi and her treatment of Tony Soprano... Do you actually, reviewing the entire series, think that Jennifer Melfi is a good psychiatrist and did an effective job of treating Tony Soprano? Like, Jennifer Melfi is a fascinating character, and her treatment of Tony Soprano is the, you know, the hub of the show, but part of what makes her a fascinating character and makes it the center of the show is that she's doing a bad job of treating Tony and does a bad job throughout. Um, and, and, and then she goes and talks to Peter Bogdanovich and he's doing a bad job of analyzing her and watching the show like that. 
it's great because if she was a great psychiatrist, the show would be over in one season or, you know, the, or she would be the star of the show or something, you know, it requires that she be bad at it. Mm -hmm. But my experience of, of being, of, of receiving head shrinking is, is very similar to sitting in there and she, you know, just in the same way that Jennifer Melfi is sort of always kind of trying to play whack-a-mole with Tony and he's manipulating her yeah. and he's resisting her and he's bullying her and she's kind of unable or unwilling. I mean, professionally maybe unable to really go after him and personally like doesn't have the stomach for it. And also, you know, her fascination gets in the way like, but also like Dr. Melfi is smart, but not, you know, like not eye poppingly smart. Mm-hmm. Peter Bogdanovich smart, but like wrong about four fifths of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the classic psych psychiatrist, uh, in TV and film who, when he doesn't know what to do or say, just sort of asks like, what do you think about that? You know, it makes me want to throw my milkshake at the TV. <laughs> how does that make and, you and, feel? Yeah. How does that make you feel? How does exactly. That make you feel. What do, what, what am I trying to say? I, what do I want? Like I want to, my primary I- experience in life until until very recently has been that ultimately I want to be left alone. I want to be left alone by people I don't know. And I want to be left alone by people I do know. I want to be left alone by expectations. I want to be left alone by systems. I want to be left alone and I don't mind paying taxes. And I honestly don't mind getting the work permitted and I don't mind, um, and I, and I believe that being a responsible citizen requires that you suffer a certain amount of indignity. But beyond that, I don't like things attaching themselves to me and, and, um, and declaring that they're indispensable. Like, I don't want my doctor to think that now she's indispensable to me. I have to go see her because her professional ethics don't allow her to give me an unlimited refill structure. And that's because the American medical association is like, it has job security baked into its, um, baked into its systems, just like lawyers. I mean, mean, you know, I have a, I have a lawyer. I filed, filed a trademark with the, for the long winters 15 years ago, just to, just to like keep the Laura Ingalls Wilder estate off my back. And this law firm that um, manages my trademark, every time they send me a letter, and they're computer-generated letters, you know, dear sir, dear sir or ma'am, after they send me the letter, uh, a week later, I get an invoice for $75 for their work. And their work was sending me the letter. <laughs> the letter says, Hey, it's that time of, you know, every five years or every three years, you have to re up your trademark. 
So let us know if you want to, signed law firm. Right. And then they invoice me for the letter. $90 or $75 or something. And it's it's such a thing that you can only get away with if you have the balls to do it. You know? Like, they just have the balls to do it. That's all. Um, because I'm, I contracted with them to do this work for me and the, and the cost of the work, which they also bill me for, um, somehow they also feel like the, they can just get this, you know, they can just get this money out of me too. And it, and it's the injustice of it. You know, I've never once paid them that invoice and maybe somewhere on their books, they're owed $4,500. $4,500. They don't seem to pursue it. They just send the invoice. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm not going to pay you $75 to send me an invoice. Uh, how, why is there not an invoice for you having sent me this invoice? Right? It's like it could go it could go on forever. We had to send you a letter to demand that you pay our invoice, and that's another $75. It's how people get caught in the court system because they have a fine. They don't pay it. The fine doubles. They don't pay it. The fine doubles again. Then there's a, uh, you know, then there's a, a bench warrant for failure to appear mm-hmm. or, or, you know, then there's a summons and then they don't come and then there's a bench warrant and then they don't come. And then there's an actual, like, uh, like go get them warrant. And then they end up in jail or they end up losing their property because of an infraction that initially had a $50 fine. I watched that happen to, I mean, that happened to me. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a system where at each stage you can kind of see the logic, see the internal logic. Well, he, we find him $50 and he didn't pay it. What are we going to, what do we have to do to get him to pay it? Well, double it and he'll pay it. Double it and then threaten him that we're going to double it again. Cut off his medicine and then he'll pay it. <laughs> right. That's right. Cut off his medicine and then, you know, he'll either die of heart disease or he'll come in for his checkup and we'll build the insurance company and that's how we keep the lights on. I mean, I sound like a, like a libertarian or like a crank. And I'm not either thing, Dan. No. Definitely not a libertarian. I don't think I'm a crank. <laughs>